0: Welcome to a very special episode of Strictly Business, live, on tape, from CES in Las Vegas. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor of Variety.
1: And I'm Andrew Wallenstein, joining Cynthia Littleton for the very first time. Can you believe, Cynthia, as long as we've been doing this podcast, we've never done this on the same episode.
0: It's long overdue, and what better place for our first joint effort than CES, which is pretty much... The epicenter reflects the epicenter of everything that's going on in the media and entertainment space right now.
1: Yeah, we've felt that as we've walked around this space today. And for our listeners, we've actually checked in with a number of really a who's who of some of the great leaders in this space. We're talking about Jeffrey Katzenberg, Meg Whitman, Mark Cuban, and a whole lot more who check in with us on this episode.
0: So please join us as we go on a journey of roaming the halls of Las Vegas hotels, looking for insights and innovators and fun stuff. And we hope you enjoy. We Our idea here is to take you on the ride at CES. Well, Andy, here we are for the very first ever Strictly Business Remote segment. We are in the epicenter of the media business right now, CES in Las Vegas.
1: Absolutely, and we're standing here, not in the main convention center, but in something called the C-Space, which is very relevant to us at Strictly Business, because it's the part of the show where entertainment and technology come together, and we're just standing near some pretty massive signs for uh, HBO Max, and Peacock. It tells you everything about where we are right now in this business.
0: You have been covering CES a lot longer than I have. From the time that you first started coming here, to today. I mean, can you could you imagine when you first started coming that you would see some of the oldest names in Hollywood having a big display like we're right now looking at the Warner Media Innovation Lab.
1: Yeah, well, it's not entirely unprecedented for media companies have a big presence at CES. We've seen it in fits and starts over the years, but I think this year, riding the wave of the streaming wars and so many other things, where technology and content are coming together in big ways, I think you feel it at this show in a way that we haven't in a very
0: long time. One of the things that's interesting, we have, as we've talked about the streaming wars, we, you know, certainly for Variety, we have focused so much on the content, on the impact, on the creative community. But one thing that you you notice here, talk to anybody for five minutes and and it really is, a lot of it is about the technology, stupid. And I think one of the things that's kind of underappreciated is just the, innovation that it takes to make something like a disney plus or a netflix you know stream as seamlessly as it as it does um are you seeing anything here that looks to you like kind of the wave of the future in terms of the technology that enables all of this content to fly through the air
1: well i i you know i think if there's one technology that bears some real attention that maybe isn't as obvious as, say the streaming wars, you're seeing a lot of innovation with regard to digital assistants and smart speakers. And I am a big believer that voice is going to come into the content business in a big way. That instead of using clunky multiple remote controls, you're gonna be talking to your TV and other objects in a bigger way. And you're gonna see Google and Amazon, not necessarily with regard to the entertainment world, but they're gonna be talking about voice assistants and smart speakers in a big way. And I think it's only a matter of time before you see all that and entertainment come together in a very big way.
0: Please tell me I will never have to search for a show by tapping out a title on (laughs) my remote control because that is so... That is so annoying and cumbersome that I will watch on demand shows on my phone rather than try to get it on mm. my you know, nice big TV because the hassle factor is just too much.
1: Yeah, you and me both. But well, you know how technology works, though. It's never a flip of the switch where all of a sudden what doesn't work suddenly works for everyone. These things are always about a gradual rollout, about consumers embracing things that really were not intuitive just a few short years. But I do think we're on the way to that, where hopefully you will never be tapping things out as I've done myself, and it drives me nuts too. Why is Quibi using CES as the place to sort of get the message out about you know where
0: your business stands?
2: because there's a long history in Hollywood of technology
0: enabling new ways to tell stories and I think that's exactly what we've done by creating a new platform that makes viewing, mo- viewing video on your mobile extraordinary we're creating a whole new canvas and a whole new tool set for creators and this is where you always launch you know, new technology platforms and so we thought we'd talk about it at CES Jeffrey you are no stranger to big entertainment ventures what has been the what what has been the unexpected hardest
2: thing of launching of getting Quibi on its feet for you? Um, well, I think it was uh, sort of getting uh, getting every getting the Hollywood community to understand what the opportunity was, what the tools were, what this new technology um, it requires shooting content in a completely unique and different way. Um, and, but what's been rewarding is, you know, once we sort of kind of got over the peak, you know, sort of pushed the boulder over the top of the hill, it was like a snowball. And now today, I think Meg mentioned, you know, there are 100 to 150 projects per week being submitted to the, you know, out across the Hollywood, you know, creative community. So getting that started, I think, was the hard part. The beauty of it is once we got it started, it's just fueled itself up in in an incredible way. So the quality of and the quantity of filmmakers and storytellers and, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera is really exceptional. And I think when you see it all on the big screen tomorrow there, it is like a oh-my-gosh moment.
0: Okay, Andy, well, for a podcast called Strictly Business, we can't get out of CES without talking, going a little deeper on the streaming. We have seen now, we've seen the launch of Disney Plus to great acclaim. Can't wait to hear what those subscriber numbers they'll disclose in early February and their earnings will be. We've seen the launch of Apple TV Plus. Uh, now we're at the top of the year. Coming up in April is Peacock from NBC Universal, Quibi, that Jeffrey Katzenberg through sheer force of will is getting off the ground with Meg Whitman. And in May is another very highly anticipated HBO Max, which really has a, is seemingly going to shape a lot of the direction of not only Warner Media, but also at and in the long run. What do you, what What have we learned from what's launched so far? And what do you, what is that telling us about what's what's to come in the first half of this year?
1: Well, what we've learned so far, I think, is you gotta come out of the gate with a lot of noise. Disney did that brilliantly, Apple did that, to some degree, and that's why I think you're here at CES seeing these next streaming launches well represented. It's no mistake that you've got Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman here that are gonna be doing some serious tub thumping for Quibi. It's no mistake that we're standing right underneath a giant sign for NBC Universal right now, as they will be on our own variety stage at our conference tomorrow, uh, as well as some of their own events talking up their own Peacock servers, particularly with regard to how it's going to appeal to advertisers. And that's going to be a whole new uh, dimension to the Streaming Wars competition.
0: That is, a, you know, the, the fact that Peacock is going to be unabashedly advertising friendly, advertising supportive, that's a definite zag where everyone else is zigging. How do you think, especially you've been spending a lot of time studying the market and, you know, audience demographics and, you know, just how people are, you know, what the subscription potential is for all of these services. The conventional wisdom is that people won't sit still for commercials. How do you think that's going to work for Peacock? Well,
1: I think if Peacock plays their cards right and rewrites a lot of the rules of TV, such as no, not too many 30-second ads, not excessive ad loads, in exchange for allowing viewers to come to quality programming for free, well, that could be a very big deal. But You gotta really play those cards right. Uh, Unfortunately, I think a lot of these subscription services like Netflix and Amazon are training a good portion of the audience to enjoy not having any ad interruption. However, you need to pay for those services. Regardless of whether you pay for advertising or not, I'm just wondering, is there going to be room for how many of these services say by the end of 2020? I do think we're gonna see a shakeout that may not it may happen a lot sooner than people think because so much investment is going into all
3: of this.
0: So much investment and so much, um, you know, almost realignment of how companies yeah. Companies the size of Disney and AT&T are moving huge pieces <laughs> on the board to get themselves ready for a kind of this new era of competition. I've heard some people speculate that in five years time, we could be looking back in the TV business looks a whole lot more like 2010 than than we would have expected for 2022. What do you think?
1: I do agree with that. I think we're at a really interesting, but very temporary state of affairs. I just don't think that you're gonna see six or seven different massive streaming services trying to kill each other. I don't think that's sustainable. And I do think we'll see, here's a good buzzword, a rebundling in time that may be necessary Uh, to sort of go through this interim phase of having all these giant streaming services. But I think it ultimately will end up somewhere that will feel not exactly like 2010, but maybe a a blend of the 2010 and the 2020.
0: Let's talk a little more specifically about Quibi, because you literally wrote the very first major story. You sat with Jeffrey, you've kind of been on this journey with him, which he said uh, to us just a little bit ago, very complimentary. (laughs) That is a real swing. And it's an interesting swing in in a little different because when you think about it, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV+, plus it's a new way of delivering what is essentially traditional television content. High-end, big stars, big production budgets. But Quibi seems to be like something that is truly trying to take the medium, a new medium that people are watching on their smartphones and integrate the the technology of the, the capabilities of a smartphone into the storytelling. Although I know we ha- none of us have seen anything from Quibi, after sitting with Jeffrey just a little bit ago, what do you, what do you make? Do you think that this really has a shot?
1: I think it's fascinating. I think it's audacious. I think you just made the right point where it's like to some degree, we need to see this product in action and I'm gonna reserve full judgment until then. But let's be honest, There's a lot of skepticism out there. In a way, it's almost too audacious. I think, though, there's something about Jeffrey himself being behind this that adds such a layer of intrigue because this is a man who has succeeded time and again in this business. He's practically a historic figure in Hollywood. So to see him take this, what could be his last big swing, it's just it's too fascinating. And it's the kind of thing you can't easily Root against someone who has such a unbelievable track record
0: and it, it's it's really true that you know you don't you know you you you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take to pull out a hockey cliche and the fact that i'm referencing hockey is kind of crazy because <laughs> i literally never watched more than five minutes of a game but i think that that is a very apt uh that, that's sort of an apt saying for this crowd and one thing that i'm sensing after having not been here for many years, is just the sense of possibility and the sense of sort of entrepreneurship, even just, even overhearing conversations on the plane coming over here from LA, the amount of people that come here with an idea, an, an idea for a better chip or a better speaker. And the, you know, and you think about the history of technology, so many of these things started in garages they started in college dorm rooms you know that that sense that spark of wonder is really kind of infectious when you're here it's
1: so great to be able to re-experience ces through your eyes i have come coming for 10 plus years i'm a bit jaded now i'm gonna try to keep my ears open to the wonder factor because i love that you're you're feeling it and uh I think I need to sort of keep my ears open.
0: We forgot to talk a little bit more about HBO Max, and I know that that must be dear to your heart because the Max part is as strictly, <laughs> as as avid listeners of Strictly Business know, is the name of your <laughs> adorable, precocious, and future world, world leader. Yes. Wallenstein, your 11-year-old son. <laughs> but more seriously, uh, HBO Max. The interesting thing about that is it, 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 will have, it will have an impact on an existing asset that is no small thing under the warner media and at&t umbrella hbo which for decades has been the gold standard of tv not only for the content but you know for a company that was known for decades for just churning out earnings that juggernaut has slowed like most of traditional tv but it's still the golden goose and you know the extreme skeptics say that if hbo max doesn't work it could it could somehow tarnish the hbo brand Do you think that there is that, you know, that there's that much on the razor's edge?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think Quibi has cornered the market on skepticism. I think HBO Max has gotten some as well. And I think it does go back to that core HBO brand from the very beginning, once AT&T sort of put their mitts on it and made clear their intent to sort of broaden out beyond this sort of prestige play to something that can be programmed more aggressively with a lot more volume of content. There's been, I think, some rightful skepticism that that brand could sort of widen its aperture to do more and not lose quality on the way to quantity. But I think also they've got some great executives there. Robert Greenblatt, Casey Bloys, Kevin Riley. These are some of the smartest people you and I have been interviewing, I think, for the past 10, 20 years. If they can't do this, I don't know who can. And so I'm not gonna call myself a skeptic for HBO Max, but I understand the skepticism that's out.
0: And I, I do understand, even though it, it, it has been hard, I think for the very, the the, the long serving HBO employees, I think, I do understand that it is, it, it sounds harsh, but HBO clearly has plateaued in terms of subscriber levels. I think that just from a just looking at the sheer business and the numbers, it has the real $64,000 question here is, will this be, you know, will this really, can this really lift HBO subscribers significantly above that 35 to 36 million range that, they're, that they've are that they been in now? Let's put it
1: this way, if this can't be the thing that gets them out of that range, what will, because I think we can agree, doing what they had already been doing And just continuing along that path that simply was not an option and in terms of their options of really cranking things up i like what they're doing we've seen their content i think they've got some great things in store for the audience and that's why i'm not going to call myself a skeptic
0: the one thing i love about all of this transition and disruption and what if and what's going to happen is it feels like full employment for you and me
1: that's the beauty of being on the sidelines no skin in the game but plenty to just (laughs) keep talking about it, because it really doesn't get more interesting.
0: There is so much to talk about at CES this year. Mark Cuban didn't contain his bullishness on the potential of AI during his keynote address at Variety's annual entertainment summit at CES. Walking around the floor, Andy and I sought out a cross-section of interesting people to offer insights on disruption, convergence, and how to navigate CES. In this next segment, you'll hear from Mark Cuban, UTA's Brent Weinstein, producer David Tuchterman, Pluto TV chief Tom Ryan, and Bleacher Report, President Howard Mittman. Take a listen.
3: If you don't know AI, you're the equivalent of somebody in 1999 saying, yeah, I'm sure this internet thing will be okay, but I don't give a shit, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same thing. And so... Each and every one of you in the business world, like what what I did, I mean, it's not like we intuitively know what AI is. I'm on AWS and I'm taking their tutorials. I'm taking Coursera classes and I'm, you know, learning how to do a three-layer neural network in JavaScript, you know, using PyTorch. It's just all these things. It's the blocking and tackling that if you want to be relevant in business and understand all this discussion about AI, you have to do or you will be a dinosaur very quickly. And you will find yourself being – there's going to be AI haves and AI have-nots. And if you are an AI have-not, you might – you might as well just rip out all the computers in your office and throw away your phones because that's how I'm packing.
1: Talking to Brent Weinstein of UTA and wanted to get a sense from you. You've been coming to CES for a long time. How central to this whole big extravaganza is media and content? Because it's been here for a while
4: too. Uh, I've been coming to CES since 2004. Uh, But we started working officially with CES in 2010 in anticipation of the 2011 show. And uh, at the core of our mission and our partnership with then the Consumer Electronics Association, now CTA, was to make CES a place that individuals, companies, creators uh, from the content and the marketing worlds that they wanted to be, and and more so a place that they felt they needed to be, make it a critical uh, event on their calendar each year. And when we started, there weren't a lot of people from those communities that came to CES. Uh, You may have seen executives that had digital somewhere in their title like me, Uh, but generally speaking, it was not a place where the broader media or marketing communities came to the show, but through uh, a lot of fantastic work by a lot of people and a real vision from Karen Shupka and Gary Shapiro at CTA and uh, we built programs that, you know, now almost a decade later, uh, media and marketing is really one of the cornerstones of the show and it's exciting.
1: Is there more to go though? I mean, could we see a time where entertainment companies like, uh, Comcast or Sony are going to be presenting on the, on the ex- exhibition floor alongside the Samsungs of the world?
4: Uh, I think so. I mean, you're seeing that at a smaller scale right now. Uh, there's some amazing exhibitors this year who are not your typical, historical CES exhibitors. you know, Delta Airlines has an amazing experience in Central Hall, which I encourage you to check out all about the future of airports. And uh, it's really innovative stuff and, and not just futuristic stuff, stuff that's actually gonna be beta tested in the Detroit airport this year. Um, and you see here at C-Space, companies like WWE and WarnerMedia and Pluto having you know physical exhibit and meeting space, and that's great. And I think that will grow. Uh, you know, I think that we've seen a huge influx of marketers, certainly. I think that uh, some of the biggest partners to C Space are large scale ad agencies and media publishers like Google and others. Uh, and I think that we'll see more of the, the content side uh, as we push forward, uh, especially if you think of some of the verticals that are just starting to explode, like esports and other you know, aspects of gaming where there's just a lot of connectivity to the tech mission at CES.
0: Does it feel like this year with the streaming wars starting and, you know, major, major entertainment companies realigning their operations like Disney and AT&T around direct to consumer streaming? Does it feel like kind of a full flowering of the entertainment and tech and content worlds that you have been trying to bring together and navigate for so long?
4: Uh, It certainly is an exciting time. you know, if you look at some recent analyst reports, Disney Plus just, what, 60 days after launch is worth $100 billion, according to somebody. I have no clue if that's true or not, but it's certainly doing well and it's valuable. And in order for that to happen, there not only needs to be extraordinary content, which, of course, Disney can supply in droves, uh, but there has to be an amazing technology experience at the center of it. And I think that uh, you're going to see and hear a lot about that stuff here. Uh, Warner Media. Uh, had a session today where they spent a lot of time talking about how they're thinking about the consumer consumer experience and specifically making it uh, very, very mobile friendly. Uh, They view a lot of the direct-to-consumer offerings as something that were really designed for uh, streaming television Uh on larger screens, uh, horizontal, and they think that a vertical environment is something where a lot of their stuff is going to be consumed and they're very focused on that. And again, I'm not here to referee and say whether that's the right thing to do or not, but I think it's interesting that a big media company seems to be focusing as much on the technology as they are on the content.
0: David Tuchterman, producer, longtime industry executive. What brings you out here this year?
1: Well, it's important, I think, learn about all the changes in the industry.
0: Can you give um, me a for instance? Um,
1: there's a company, um, that got started um, called Observatory Um, that was financed by Stagwell in D.C. and CAA Uh and uh, they're been doing some really interesting stuff for a number of brands. And I'm also here to
3: see what people are doing.
0: Yeah. Is this a place for you for like discovery or networking or a mixture of both? both?
3: It's both. And as I said, if you're going to build cars for a living, it's important to be in Detroit every now and then.
0: Thanks for stopping and talking to us for a little bit. I feel like you must be looking around at the landscape now and going, I was in streaming before streaming was cool. What has it been for your business to have pretty much everybody in media talking nonstop and thinking nonstop about the direct-to-consumer business and how to reach consumers with video in a different way?
3: Thanks for having me. Um, We certainly were in ad-supported streaming before ad-supported streaming was cool. Um, I'll give credit to some of the... Um, other pioneers on the paid side, but um, what we found um, when we launched Pluto TV was that um, you know there were we were really living in a world where everyone thought that everything was moving towards on-demand, paid, and ad-free, um, and we took three contrarian bets: um, first, being the power of curated linear um, was going to be big in the future of streaming; um, and second, uh, and third, I guess, given everything that has been done in uh, ad supported television over the years, it's funded so much great content um, as well as in broadcast, which has been free that um, a free ad supported service could be really big. So um, it's certainly fulfilling to see the industry now appreciating the potential of ad supported streaming. We think it's the largest single addressable opportunity in streaming and um, we're excited to be the leader in the space. Just building on our momentum to actually be the global leader uh, in free streaming television.
0: Does the, the fact so NBC Universal is coming in with their Peacock service, which they have said is you know is definitely going to be ad supported. That is their different. That is their effort to differentiate from other some other little things you might have heard of, heard about. Is that a rising tide lifts all boats? Is that good news for you being in this marketplace, or do you, or is this now a little more? Is it a little more zero sum in terms of the competition for ad dollars?
3: I think the ad supported streaming space, free ad supported streaming space, is still in its infancy. So, I think there's massive growth ahead. Uh, I think the so called streaming wars are going to be great for Pluto TV's business. Uh, we know that uh, consumers tend to only be willing to pay for a handful of uh, paid services, um, but consumers are creating their own bundles now rather than getting their TV from one monolithic provider. So, if they're using a handful of apps, they're only willing to pay for a few, um, then the way to expand. Their bundles um, cost effectively is by working with Pluto TV, where you can get hundreds of premium channels and thousands of TV shows and movies on demand, all at no extra expense. Um, I think there's going to be a huge amount of growth in ad-supported streaming. Uh, we're leading the charge in that respect um, and content partners, distribution partners and advertisers are all flocking to the platform. I think there will be multiple winners but we think we're going to be the undisputed win- winner. We've got um, a huge head start, um, we've now got Viacom CBS behind mm-hmm. us and uh, we're going global in a big way and I think uh, it's going to be a a massive, massive business.
0: Howard Mittman, CEO of Bleacher Report, a digital brand that my son really enjoys. Tell me, what brings you to CES?
5: This is, I think, my 18th year at CES. Uh, I started out years ago uh, covering technology space and I've seen this evolve. Um, for me, this year, it's probably a little less about technology and more about the folks who are you know, using media to package and create ideas, whether they be content or ads uh, across an increasingly wide spectrum of devices. And so uh, coming to CES feels like one of those places that you have to start the year off at because ultimately um, everyone you need to speak to is here.
0: Tell me, talk a little bit about um, you know Bleacher Report. To me, is, really seems like a a really a great digital success story for the for the Turner and Warner Media brands. It, you really you know you're an organic growth story for the for the company. What is it? Bleacher Report has been around for a while, but it seems like in the last year or two, it's really elevated as a brand. What do you what do you attribute the kind of the What would you say is the catalyst for the growth of Bleacher Report as a brand and a destination for sports fans? I I don't know that it's one thing
5: specifically. I think there's a couple of different things that we would focus on. You know, primarily our mission is that we exist to make it as easy as possible to be a sports fan. And so wherever it is you want to consume sports or sports culture content, whatever it is you want to consume, we have a, a sort of need to be there to... Again, make it as easy as possible for consumers to engage in and around the sports content they love. Um, For us, uh, 50% of our sales and our um, content consumption happens on our app. So our app has 20 million downloads. We have 9.5 million users opted in to receive alerts on a daily basis, multiple times a day. Uh, That drives a pretty big chunk of the usage and a pretty big sort of part of how we remain a, a not just a daily, but a sort of multiple time a day um, point of contact and connection with consumers. On the other end of the spectrum, we, we've built a really successful um, social network and, uh, you know, across a variety of different channels. We on Instagram, we, I think in 2019, we, Bleach Report created eight of the top 10 uh, most engaging branded content uh, experiences on the entire platform, not just in sports. On Twitter, um, we're the number two most engaging handle across all of Twitter, second behind only you know the president. So we, um, we, we, we've we built a really nice business there, and I think what that does is it allows us to sort of extend our brand mission, our name, and then also create a, somewhat of a feedback loop back into our app. And so as we're thinking about content and content experiences, um, we think about them in a variety of ways in order to serve the different kinds of content consumption habits that our consumers have across all the various platforms.
0: How have you integrated, you know, the the specific technological abilities of being on a digital platform? How have you integrated that into the content that you serve up to users?
5: I think technology is is invariably a, a part of not just how you Um, create content, it's a part of how you uh, conceptualize content. And so, the technology inherent in the distribution, which for us is really ultimately the primary factor that we think about, um, has to be a part of of what we do from the earliest phases. And I think ultimately um, that shows out in the way that we are able to create different kinds of content experiences for different kinds of fans on different kinds of platforms. but. One thing that we pride ourselves on is that wherever it is you log on um, or view or experience our content, it looks, it feels like Bleacher Report, and you know that it is part of a broader holistic universe that is you know, there to help you.
0: Bleacher Report is a digital native brand, but you also do have the benefit of of, as part of Turner's on-air coverage of of NBA and other sports, they do reference they do reference Bleacher Report. Do you ever see a causal link if Charles Barkley talks about Bleacher Report when he's co- in an NB you know in covering the NBA? Do you see a spike in you in in users?
5: If the foundational element of your question is does TV. Work. Yes. The short sure answer is it works really well. Um, we, we benefit from a you know a reciprocal relationship with our friends on the linear side. Um, we help give them social and digital distribution. They help give us scale. And you know there is just always inevitably something about television. It is the probably forever and always the lingua franca of our business to a to a large degree and so, well said yeah so the, the way that they work together in concert um i don't know very many uh success stories uh in terms of acquisitions that have integrated as well into a host organiza- organization as bleach report has and so the way that we work together um you know is, is probably should be a case study somewhere.
0: Sounds like a project for Variety. Howard, thank you so much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me. Enjoy the show.
0: I surely did enjoy my first visit to CES in many years. I found it very enlightening and very inspiring.
1: I hope you did. I felt like, Cynthia, being with you and able to see this show anew through your eyes, my jaded self, was reawoken to how great this show can be in terms of demonstrating what's coming for this business.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Please join us next week for another episode of Strictly Business.